My name is Mary Pat, and I'm a compulsive overeater. Welcome to the newcomers. You're the most important people in the room. That's what this program's here for. And each of us was a newcomer at one point, so welcome, welcome. I brought one picture because I thought it might be, you know, I haven't seen people do this in a long time, but I think it might be of interest to take a look at it. Uh, today is a really significant day for me, besides, oh, and I thank Tony and Wendy for inviting me to speak. Um, and Sharon for the microphone for all the work you put into that, thank you. <laughs> um, this is the anniversary of my sister's death. And my sister died um, 13 years ago. And the reason why I bring her up so early on in, in this uh, speaking is that uh, she and I both really, really suffered from compulsive overeating. And we did a lot of our compulsive overeating together when we were little girls. And um, she, uh, subsequently, as we grew up, she became a nurse and then became a hospice nurse and was a hospice nurse for about uh, 15 or 20 years and really a terrific one. Um, but seriously overweight and having difficulty and then she was diagnosed with cancer and with the cancer drug she put on even more weight. So we would discuss all the time that if she could beat this game, the two of us were going to do something about losing weight. Now, as young girls, we had tried every diet known to man. We had tried Tops, and there was a grapefruit diet at one point, grapefruit and hard-boiled eggs, which, you know, just thinking about that now, the insanity of it. Who could be on grapefruit and hard-boiled eggs for the next 30 years of your life? And hopefully you were going to be healthy and have 30 years. So anyway, there, you know, so we did all of those. And to show how crazy the food went, um, it wasn't with her, but my best friend one time, we, uh, my best friend stole $5 from her mother's wallet, which I didn't actually know at the time, and we bought $5 worth of candy. Now, $5 worth of candy in 1960 was so much candy, you, you know, it was like carrying a, a pillowcase of candy. <laughs> and I remember we ate a whole big bag of M&Ms apiece. And that night, of course, I, after eating these, I vomited them. And with my mother's standing right over me, over the toilet bowl looking at me, she said, what did you eat today? And I said, well, I didn't eat candy. And the, <laughs> <laughs> and the toilet bowl is obviously full of candy, so there you go. So I started my lying career early, too. Not very convincing, but anyway. Yeah. So that was one of the worst ones that I did. The last worst one, which is, is so wild, was... Um, there used to be Easter eggs that were varnished that had little scenes in them. You could look inside them and they had little scenes. The same girlfriend and I, oh my God bless her. Uh, the two of us went up to our attic one day and were playing. We found these eggs and we're always hungry, eternally hungry, the two of us. And um, we picked off the shellac and ate the sugar eggs. Now, that's the worst one that I've ever done, but I thought, you know, just going into dumpsters, pulling things out of garbage, I understand all that eating frozen food. I was that kind of compulsive overeater. So, um, anyway, I tried all these programs and they didn't work, but now with my sister in this condition, we started, I started to talk to her about Overeaters Anonymous. I asked her if she had heard about the program, and I said, um, my sister's name is Connie, and I said, Connie, I think... This is the only thing we can conceivably do because I think you can do it every day for the rest of your life. And uh, whatever I do, it's going to have to be every day for the rest of my life. And I know I can't do it alone because I've done it alone. And it's not that the diet didn't work. They did. And I'd lose weight for a while and I'd lose considerable amounts of weight. But it would be right back on again and sometimes more. So anyway, um, one of the things that really took me by surprise is during my sister's struggle with cancer and with 
chemotherapy and radiation and all that went along with it, and they tried to get her to stem cell retrieval too, but couldn't get a clean enough uh, a spinal fluid to be able to actually do it. Um, she she had a ton of friends who were nurses, her dear friends that that took care of her, and they would come to the house, and they all brought all the substances that most of us cannot eat. That's what they brought to comfort her, and I thought, oh. This is what we do. Compulsive overeaters feed this to other people too. I even found in my first year of abstinence that I was I was encouraging other people to eat the things that I wasn't eating. It was like vicariously or something. Um, people were eating it, and finally somebody said to me, "Are you a sugar pusher?" And I, said, I am so embarrassed that I've been doing this. So I stopped and figured out ways to be able to have a dinner party and have something reasonable for a dessert that I could also have that I didn't have to make any excuses about or explain why I was doing it. It still served as something lovely and felt like it was a gracious meal and a lovely dessert. So anyway, um, my sister, when I cooked for her, I prepared all these lovely meals for her and tried to keep it all clean. But I saw how big this problem is and how even... Even when she died, I thought the best service I could do was to come into these rooms. And I had a friend who was my Eskimo who had been in the rooms for seven years at that time and had said, if you ever want to go to an Overeaters Anonymous meeting, I'd be happy to take you. And what was so surprising is in those seven years that she was in program, whenever we had a meal together or whenever she was a part of a dinner party, I always fixed an abstinent meal for her. And I thought it was just it was so interesting to her. She, so she said, I, I just think that, you know, you might want to go to a meeting. So I went into my first meeting, which was Serenity Sunday. And um, I was struck abstinent from sugar immediately at that meeting. Now, that only lasted nine months. I found a, a sponsor who was too young for me, 24 years old, and a young man. And um, to let you know, I have uh, over 10 years of abstinence. But I've had two years that it took, almost two and a half, three years that it took me to get my abstinence. So I've been in the program since 2001. But anyway, so um, uh, when I got to my fourth step with this sponsor, I thought, I just can't do this. I cannot read a 50-year-old inventory to a 26-year-old young man. And the reason why I had asked him to be my sponsor is because he was a an absolutely gentle human being and he was full of humility and that was so attractive to me that that was why I made him my sponsor. So I realized that it was an attractive, an attraction thing of the humility was really what I was looking for in a sponsor and that I would continue to look and subsequently I did find another sponsor. So anyway, I got an abstinence of almost a year twice and that abstinence was completely spoiled by Christmas coming up and... (laughs) And I made candy against the judgment of my sponsor's advice for people for Christmas presents. And while I was making it, of course, ate some of it. And because it wasn't even that much. But because that's what I chose to do, my sponsor said, that's kind of, it's, it's such a belligerent thing in the, in the face of the gift that you've been given of abstinence that perhaps you'd like to start again just to have a clean abstinence. So I ended up having to do that twice. So that just shows you how terribly, how stubborn I was that I could do things my way or, and, or that I wasn't the grat- lacking in gratitude for the abstinence that I'd been given and that it was so easy to, to have um, flown in the face of that is, 
you know, that's, we're compulsive overeaters. I guess that's what we, certainly what I did. So, um, but anyway, I was getting to another level of honesty and being able to tell the truth about these things, and I did not pretend that I hadn't done it. Interestingly enough, because I was so resolved before I came into the room that this is the only thing that would work for me, I never missed my meetings. I never stopped working my program. So, um, although I started over again, I never left the rooms. And I've never done that in all the time I've been in here. It's been significant to me to always be in these rooms. So, anyway, I began again and worked the 12 steps with um, my sponsor. And I'll, I, I just finished working the 12 steps for a second year uh, with my sponsor just this year. So, and um, somebody had said to me at a meeting in New York once, once you work the 12 steps, you work the 12 steps, you don't have to do it again. And I thought, that really didn't work for me. Because I found that somebody had said also in the room, they used the metaphor of the onion, that we're dealing with an onion and that we're slowly peeling layers of the skin away to get to the truth in the bottom of the disease, to get to, to um, a serene and peaceful life. And I have found that to be true for me, that there's so many blessings in this program. And one of the blessings for me has been that um, I have, when I've gone to do my step work, I've remembered everything that I can and put it down honestly. And I remember, I used to think that it said, to make a fearless and ruthless inventory. <laughs> that made me laugh because I thought, oh, it's so like me to make it worse than it is. Um, so I, I did uh, what I thought was a terrific inventory, but two years later, other things came up, and I thought, oh, it may be denial, but what a gift denial is because that would have been overwhelming to me the first time I went through. If I thought it was going to be endless and I could never finish, that would have been too much for me. Now that's no big deal. Whatever comes up, I've got tools to work with it, and I'm open to the possibility of it coming up. And over the years, a lot of stuff has come up that I've been able to unpack and let go of. And, of course, it's resulted in, thankfully, weight loss, which is really significant, and it's an important part of this program. And I don't mean not to make it important, and I should say at this point that I have lost 45 pounds in this program and kept it off for um, at least eight years now. Um, I would like to lose more weight. I still... Uh, try to work on a losing abstinence, but I am a happy person today, even the way I am, because there's a, there's a part of me that really believes now, well, the whole of me really believes now, that I'm in God's hands, I'm in surrender, and that I am right and perfect for right now, for how my life is at this moment. So that feels good to me. One of the things that took me really by surprise when I came into the program is that the second step came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity was a huge thing for me, and I wept and wept the first time I heard that. And part of that was because at the age of 35, I was diagnosed with bipolar disease. And I had a huge episode that put me in the hospital at that time. And when I came out, I was also the thinnest I'd ever been. I weighed 125 pounds. Um, I, had, uh, I was madly in love with a young man who was, in fact, in love with my best friend. And they were having an affair, and I didn't know anything about it, so I was brokenhearted. I lost the job that I was doing. Uh, so I came out of the hospital and having to practically recreate my whole life. Also, they put me on meds that put weight on me. And I have to say, meds can have an effect on you like that, but if you have a proclivity for putting on weight, it probably is more disastrous than it would be otherwise. What might be five pounds in one person was 20 pounds in myself. And I bring that up because I had to struggle with 
many episodes over the years, and I ended up in five episodes putting on 100 pounds. And so I was up to 225 pounds when I stopped weighing myself before I came into these rooms. And um, I, I then, being in these rooms, I should also say that I had 10 years where I had no episodes and not much disturbance from this illness at all. And I think that has a great deal to do with the fact that we get three-minute shares in these rooms, that you get to come in and talk about your trouble for two minutes, hopefully, and one minute on recovery. But you get a chance to spill this stuff out that's disturbing you, that's, that's disruptive in your life, that's causing you the things that we used to eat over. You know, all the things we used to eat over and the things we used to worry over, certainly I worry over them, to let go of them early on, and that has made a great deal of difference in my life. So that, that really came to be almost a promise for me that I would be restored to sanity. Besides being a step, it has been a promise, and it has completely changed the way I conduct my life and how I feel in life and how I move in life, and that's been just extraordinary. And this year, I experienced a couple of miracles around that. I had... Um, I hadn't had these episodes in years, as I say, and then in February, uh, two years ago, I had one when I was on a very difficult court case, and I had been in 15 days of testimony on mesothelioma, and it was it was pretty rough. It was uh, a lot of surgery, a lot of conversation about lungs, a lot of conversation about cancer, and I had three members of my family that were wrestling with cancer at the time, and um, it became overwhelming for me, and I ended up having an episode, and... Um, I recovered from that, got back into these rooms immediately. Well, I was in them anyway. I came into them even while I was in distress. But I was not hospitalized for that, which was really almost impossible. I managed to get back on my feet, and I still think that that was the program holding me tightly. So there was that, and then also I had one in February uh, and found myself downtown wandering around for two days, um, completely hallucinating. And I left my purse downtown and walked away from it, and... Uh, ended up being helped by the police and, and um, a friend of mine got myself back on my feet again and I said to somebody, you know, they said, well, maybe somebody will return your purse. And there was about four other people there and they said, return your purse from downtown L.A.? No. That would be tantamount to a miracle. So, anyway, it's really funny because the other day in the mail, I got a package from Pollo Loco and some person at Pollo Loco had found a zip contain a zip wallet. It was not mine but my checkbook was in it, and they had seen my address and my name, so they sent it to me. Now, exactly, <laughs> exactly. That expression is, it's tantamount to a miracle. It is a miracle that some person working at their job would find this, search through it, and try to find the owner of these belongings. Um, I also think it's interesting because there was a passport in there, and there was a driver's license, and I thought, oh, now it's my turn my turn to participate in the miracle. I need to take this down to the police station and see if we can get this passport back to a person and a driver's license. Well, <laughs> that was more complicated than I thought it was going to be because I went down there and the police said, well, you know, you, one, one officer said, you know, you might have been better off just taking your checkbook out of there and tossing the rest of this stuff because now it's your property and now you have to report it as your property. And I said, I'm okay with all that. Whatever the consequences are, I'm okay because... This, I said, you know, you don't need to know this, but it's a miracle that this is in my hands. So anyway, the guy was like, <laughs> so, <laughs> and I thought, and he didn't ask, tell me about it. And I thought, good for him. He doesn't want to know. Doesn't want to know. Just give me this stuff, damn it. You made my day harder. So anyway, so I was able to give it to him, but I thought, gee, what an extraordinary thing. 
then following that, I got a fabulous phone call from uh, this, one of the sweet women that works here in Los Angeles in one of our offices. And the phone call was that I was a treasurer for a meeting on Thursdays. And at, at that meeting, um, I had paid the treasury and paid the, the um, uh, intergroup money, and the check had bounced. Now, that check goes all the way back to uh, January when this happened. But I thought, now, that would have been such an issue in my life. But I thought, oh, of course it bounced. Because the second that I got, I got recovery, I had called and canceled all my checks and canceled everything that was in my book. And I didn't, re- and I didn't have the register, so I didn't know what checks I had written. So I thought, oh, how lucky. How lucky that I was doing the treasury just because I try to work on abundance in my life, and that's one of the ways that I work on abundance is to handle uh, money from these meetings and to try to make sure that we're always ahead and that we're doing well, and I just think spiritually that's good for me. So as it turns out, I have the money, and I can pay that, and it's no big deal. And she didn't even, she was so sweet because there was no judgment at all about this check ending bounce. She couldn't have been nicer when she called me. But what's really interesting is I thought, oh, and I got enough money to be able to pay. I know that a bounce check costs $25. I know that's what they cost now because I, I manage a building, and every time anybody bounces their rent, that's the fee that they have to pay. And I thought, oh, and I've got enough money to be able to pay that too, to be able to pay that in and make up that debt which needs to be paid. And that made me feel good. And I thought about the abundance and beauty and the miracles of this program. And I know that's kind of a crazy one. But I think a lot of people have little crazy miracles that happen in here. They just let you know that God's got, got its eye on you for whatever image you have of your higher power, that you're being held by it all the time, and that there's reasons why these things happen. So I thought that was extraordinary. And um, let me see what else I have to say. Um, oh, I have found that over the years, having done the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh steps, that character defects of mine have been lifted. Some of them are lifted, and I haven't heard from them again. Others are lifted, and then they appear again. Or new ones show up that I hadn't seen. One of the things that really helped me in, in hearing my character defects was for four, three or four years in Los Angeles now, I haven't had my radio on in my car much ever, or music playing. I use it as meditation time because I understand... Somebody explained to me one time, meditation really is now, 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 just being present for all the seconds of your life. So I thought, okay, that's something I should be able to do and be alert in my car. And I have found that it's turned out to be such a wonderful place for me that first time I get in my car and drive somewhere here in Los Angeles, how I think about people, what thoughts are crossing my mind, what judgments I place on people tells me exactly where I'm at, what's going on with me that day. And I find I will be, I, I used to say out loud swear words or, or be angry with people and, and that would come out of my mouth. Then I thought it about them. And now I realize there's a space between the thoughts where I can hear myself saying, what's that? And I can make a choice to not say that or to not think that or to bless that person or to imagine that I have no idea what phone call they just got. I have no idea where they're headed. I don't know what their job is. So I, I bless the program for that because it's giving me an opportunity not to think that way. Wendy, was that five? Well, that's five. 
so um, that has been, for me, a wonderful thing. I had gone to a traffic school at one point, and this really darling lady was one of the most wild accents I think I'd ever heard was actually doing the, the um, uh, eight hours that day. Yeah, which was she was just and she was the sweetest thing, but so funny, and I could barely understand her. But she kept talking about when you're driving. Do not let them get your goat. <laughs> you put your goat in the trunk. <laughs> and then they cannot get it. So you put it way back there and you drive without that goat. <laughs> and I, thought, I thought it was the sweetest thing and I hear her. And of course, that's a terrible impersonation of her, so I apologize. But I think of her all the time and I think, Geez, I, I did work at trying to put my goat in the trunk, but without this program, that goat was sitting right next to me, you know, chatting right. Did you see what they just did? Look at that one. So <laughs> I think, oh, my God. So it was, really, it was really wonderful to be able to find that I could very serenely in my car now have somebody cut me off and actually scare me and think, oh, God bless them. God bless that person, and I hope they get some sanity and cool down a little bit because if they're going to an emergency, they have to go to a coolie too. That's another thing I can do today that I find just extraordinary. When I'm in a hurry or when all of a sudden time seems to just, you know, close in on itself and you find you left enough time to be able to go somewhere but there's been enough circumstances that you're not going to be late, I can take a deep breath and think, God's in charge. It's okay. And I have had the experience several times now that I've arrived somewhere and they've said, oh, thank God you're late. We were in the middle of this thing and it was going, and I think, there we go, thank God. Right up front they said it. And I thought, oh, that's such a wonderful thing to hear. It so makes a difference in your life. So um, anyway, today I have to say I am, I wake in the morning, I have um, prayer time and meditation, I eat an abstinent breakfast. I have exercises that I do. I go to the gym and do exercises there too. I have. Um, I realize that in my program, I can't keep my, my weight won't stay at any kind of a reasonable level unless I'm also exercising, and it's important for our bodies anyway. So I feel I have to do it. And as I'm getting older, it's more difficult. I have to eat a little less, and I have to work out a little more. So, um, and I'm grateful for that today. That doesn't mean that I don't have days where I am absolutely paralyzed and can't pull myself off the sheets and don't make it to my class and forget to pray right away. But I don't ever get through a whole day where I don't remember those things. I try to go to uh, big book study meetings. I go to uh, share meetings. I go to writing meetings. I go to OA literature meetings. Um, I try to go to about four meetings a week, if not more. Uh, that is... Uh, my pleasure and it's my medicine and the more I do it the better my week goes I don't have to think about my food a lot and I don't have to think um, I don't have to constantly remind myself about this program if I'm doing my meetings if I'm doing my meetings it just is with me I wake in the morning in a more spiritual state than if I'm you know not doing those things so um, I feel that my life has dramatically changed and that I did absolutely have a spiritual awakening in this program. And I was raised in a religious family, but I was raised, and I do not blame them, nor do I blame the church that I was raised under, uh, but I got the impression that God was a very judgmental being and that 
I got the impression that women weren't sacred and men were. And that was really tough as a little girl to not feel that you had value because we're already, in the 50s, I was, I was still in a society where women's value was less than it is today. It's better today. But I also had been feeling that the people that I admired most and, and the actual people, the, the being that I worshipped, didn't hold me as sacred. So I had to do some work on that myself. And I did that work in these rooms. And it was easy. I had a lot of help from sponsors and suggestions from people of write letters to God, write a description of God, write a description of what would be the perfect God for you. And I found that and I'm happy with it today. And it hasn't changed because it was... I made it enormous. And um, one of the things that I told myself is I thought, if I was the mother of the world, <laughs> what an only thing, huh? If I was the mother of the world, I thought, I would want all of my children to make their way home to me one day, no matter who they were or what they were. I'd want all my babies back. So I thought, I'm going to make that a part of my God, and I did. So anyway, thank you for letting me share. <laughs> This is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need to identify yourself. Okay. And if, if being recorded, please remember, if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. Okay. Can we stop at 9.50? Yes. The question is, could I talk about letting go? Yes, I think, let me see if I can find a good example. Um, I could talk about my career. In my career, I'm, I was always being coached to uh, uh, promote myself, to, to, you know, do something every day, send materials out, uh, do... Uh, you know, fight for this, fight for that. And, um, you know, it's kind of a one-upmanship thing. And I found in these rooms that that got to be too much. It felt like when I didn't get something or the job didn't happen for me, it was my fault and it didn't work out and that wasn't right. And I began to realize what if the truth were that nothing could keep my good from coming to me? What if that's the truth? That God meant certain things for me and nobody was going to be able to take those things away from me because they were mine. They were my experiences for my spiritual development. And conversely, I could not take anything away from anybody else that was theirs and belonged to them. And that, I decided to act as if, to just decide that that was the truth and that when something would happen that I really desired and hoped would make a difference in my life and I thought would be that I would be able to um, walk away from that and say, okay, not mine. Somebody else was blessed them. I hope they have a good time. That has turned out to be a truth in my life. And I have had financial solvency. I've been able to do some things that really thrilled me. And on these jobs that I go on, I think jobs are a real interesting thing because um, sometimes you think it's the job you're going on and it might be somebody that you're meeting there or a conversation that you have that day. That is really the significant thing of the day for me. And um, that has to do with letting go, too. By letting go and not determining what that day is supposed to be about or how it's supposed to go or how it's supposed to look, I have found that I let go enough 
that God can get into the day and I can realize the things that are happening that seem to be God-filled or God-intended. You know, not that all of it isn't intended that way, but that's, that's one of the things that really helped me, you know, let go. Yes. So, exactly. All right, the question is uh, about step three, made decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. How does one do that correctly? Yeah, and uh, exactly, how did I? Yeah, I can't speak for anybody else. Um, that, is, that has been so many steps for me. Um, turning my will over to God, the first part of that was to get a God that I felt I could turn my will over to. So that was the first part for me, was to have to go after my concept of God. As soon as I got a concept of God that I really trusted, then I just had to say it. I had to be willing to let go. Um, so I had to have the willingness to be willing, is really what I'm saying. So that's the second stage for me was to pray over the willingness to be willing to do the thing. Like I was just saying in this last example, I had to be willing to believe that there was a possibility that God had my best interest in mind and that the things that I was meant to do would come my way and that maybe I didn't have to wrestle with them, that they, I just had to do what was in front of me, the very next step. And that's what I had to begin to do. And in my willingness to be willing, I just kept doing the very next thing in front of me. And by doing that, I've gotten to a point now where I don't seem to wrestle so much with God's will and my will. I don't think. But I can tell when I'm in my will, when I'm really determined that I'm going to do something my way or that uh, it's got to be done this way or that it should turn out this way. Now, I have to say, as manager of a building, that has been a wrestling match because I have owners that I'm responsible to and I have tenants and I'm the liaison. And they don't necessarily agree on what's going on or how they care about one another. And it has been so interesting to be in that position to see that the owners of this building are compassionate, lovely people, but they're also business people and they're trying to make a living. They also see that in a very old building like ours, that there are repairs that need to be made, but they're so intense. What do you do in a, in a one-bedroom apartment that has to have its bathroom redone? What do you do with that tenant then? How do you handle a thing like that? How do you get it done? So they, their choice is to repair it to the best of their abilities and that when somebody moves out, they'll address these issues if they need to be addressed. That's really tough on the tenants because the tenants think that they're doing nothing. And I realize that my job isn't to resolve that for the owners or for the tenants. It's to be a liaison and to try to take information back and forth until they can handle it. But I want to fix it a lot of the time. And I find myself quite frequently having to surrender to God because it's tough for me to go to somebody and tell them something that they once said to us. And I realize it's not my job to judge what they once said to this person. My job is to simply say it. So is that the time? Oh, okay. Yes, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Yes. 
Uh, the question is, can I talk about making amends, and can I talk about the approach that I'm, where the approach is different in the first and second time that I did uh, the 12 steps? Yes, I can talk about making amends. I have had, um, I had a, a, an interesting amends that um, we have a, a gardener for the building, and the gardener um, uh, I did not know was going upstairs in the second story of the building with a blower and blowing this around to, to clean the hallways, and it was going in people's apartments, and they just hated it. So I hadn't seen him do this, and I had said to them, I've never seen him do this. So one day I happened to be home and he was doing it and I went running out in my bathroom and said, you can't do that. You Well, I later on found out that he took such offense to this. He felt so chastised and that I was rude and I was mean to him, and which I'm sure in my alarm that's exactly how it read. So I thought I owe him an amends. So I went to make an amends to him and it was really interesting because I keep learning things about humility, which is one among many. He had been treated shabbily by so many people that that anger came back at me with that apology. It may have been the first apology he'd gotten, and it wasn't enough to calm him down, really, that time. And I thought, I just kept breathing and kept breathing and kept breathing, and uh, he kind of had to roar me down and talk about how rude people are, and people think they can talk to people and talk down to them, and, you know, he, he works hard, and, you know, all the things that are absolutely true. So I thought, okay, I have a choice here. So I apologized again and walked away. And I thought, I talked to my sponsor and I said, I really think this is so loaded. I think that on another day, I need to say again how sorry I am. And we agreed that that would be okay because of the, the nature of the amends and how it had gone. And when I went to him a second time, he could not have been seen and said, I'm so sorry. And I was, you know, so angry and I should have taken that out on you. And, and I said, well, I didn't know that this was part of your job and that you've been doing it for a long time, so I apologize too. So that worked out lovely for us. So that was a fairly simple amends, but it, you know, was done twice. And it involved going back to a sponsor again and talking to the sponsor about it. In the two different times that I've done it, that I've done my 12 steps and I've made amends, gotten to the ninth step. Um, what I found was because I'd done my major ones in my step one, and because we have a 10th and 11th step, um, I've been able to meditate on things and to write about them, and I was making amends all along. So I didn't have a lot of amends to make the second time through. But I did have stuff that had come up on resentments that I needed to work on that were my own personal resentments or jealousies about other people. So those things I had to work on myself. And I mostly wrote letters about those to myself that I read and then gave to God and then had God write me a letter back and then let go of them. So, you're welcome. Diane? That's interesting. Diane is asking about a tenth step. How do I do a tenth step? Um, I've done both. I've, I've uh, called a sponsor and talked to a sponsor about it or called a fellow and talked to a fellow about it, and they have suggested I write a letter. And um, uh, what's really great is one time I was coached through, it took nine letters before I got to a letter that had no incrimination in it. And I kept surrendering the letter to them. So I obviously was so angry, I wanted to blame them for what had happened. And in fact, they had culpability in it. But that wasn't my business. My business was my part in it. And I finally got to a point of where I was able to um, uh, 
meet this person on the street quite casually and make amends, which was great. I also have done mental amends. I've done laid in, you know, in, in bed at night and thought about how did the day go and was there anything that I needed to address. Um, generally, I address those things pretty quickly, like the next day if, if something occurs to me. I'll call the next day. But I find, once again, with that medication time in my vehicle, I also have that it, it, it affected my whole life. So I'll be in the middle of a conversation with somebody and realize we're in a men's territory. And I can stop myself from going there or I can just now realize that we are disagreeing about something I'm trying to make them, talking about will again, trying to make them see it my way or I've decided I'm right. And I can sometimes let go of it in the conversation. And then it doesn't end up being one of those things for me. But that doesn't mean it's perfect at all and it doesn't mean that I haven't got more amends to make. But we've got these beautiful steps here that, you know, we can keep working. And I can't encourage people more to work them all the time because I, I think that that's, that's really what this program is meant to do and that you don't do them once and walk away and call it out, you know. It's like taking your medicine one day and hoping it works for the rest of your life. Uh, you know, you got kind of need my medicine every day. Yeah. Thank you. I can. Interestingly enough, um, I came in and I've done this a couple of times with people in the program. I have a friend, one in particular that does this with me all the time, that we kind of bookend our days or bookend a problem. And I would call her and say, it's 10 o'clock in the morning. I'm normally up at 6.30 and I'm calling you from my bed. I cannot get out of my bed today. And she would say, well, what can you do? And I said, um, well, I can get up and I can shower. She said, why don't you get up and shower and then call me as soon as, you, as soon as you've had your shower and you've gotten dressed. So I've done that. Then I called her back and said, I'm back in bed again. And she said, what more can you do today? And I said, I think I can do a load of wash and I can fix myself a decent breakfast and maybe start on a salad or something for lunch and put it in the refrigerator so that it's done. She said, well, do all of that and then call me back. And I have. And it feels like, besides having God there with me, it feels like you've got a friend waiting on you. You know, that they're holding you in prayer. And you hate, it gives me a sense of not wanting to waste their time. So I do the thing I say I'm going to do. Then I would call her and say, I just can't, I, gotta, I just can't do it. I'm broken hearted today, and I just need to go back to bed. And she said, then go back to bed and read. And I said, I can't believe all God wants for me is to read. Then I'm a professional reader now. I lay in bed and read. That's all God wants for me. And she said, well, that may be all you can give God right now. It may not be all that God wants for you. It's all that you can give right now until you start to feel better. And I always made my meetings. And then she started suggesting, why don't you go to a meeting every day? So I tried to go to a meeting every day. And I would call her sometimes and say, I don't want to go to the meeting. And she said, well, you don't want to go to this one. How about going to one later on today? So it really helped me. So going to meetings really helped in being able to go in and sit and say, I'm sad. My sister died and I miss her terribly and I'm sad. Now, what's really wild about that is I was at a girlfriend's house yesterday doing some work with her. We write together sometimes. And she said to me, how are you doing about tomorrow? And I said, Oh, do you know that I'm sharing in an OA meeting? She said, no, 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 it's your sister's, the anniversary of your sister's death. And I said, oh, my God, I forgot That that pain would be so relieved that I would forget that specific date is an utter and complete shock to me. And I think that's God at work. That is not the most significant thing in my life is holding on to that pain today. That it really, they say that time will heal things, but time and God, I think, really heal things. And that's what works for me. Yeah, you're welcome. 
thing, because I do have one. Um, God's will for me in whether or not I should be married has been an issue with me, or should I be involved with somebody? And um, trying to figure out what's my part. Am I supposed to do something about it, or am I supposed to do my day as I do my day and meet the people that I meet and see what happens? That's been a big deal for me. And I have to say, I haven't resolved it. It's still a wrestling match for me. Even at my age, I think, well, maybe I'm supposed to be involved with somebody and married, or maybe I'm supposed to be involved uh, in a relationship right now, and I'm not. So... That one, I keep peeling the layers back from because I've been very, very happy many years of my life being single. And there have been other times where I'm just devastated by the loneliness and think, is this, is, this, is this not the way that you really find your way through life? Is it important that you need to be in a relationship? And I know that there's a lot of people who aren't in relationships, and a lot of us wrestle with that. So that's the layer of the onion that, it's one of the layers, because there are other things that I wrestle with, too. But that's, that's been a difficult one. And the career one that I addressed before, that was a huge one. But layer by layer, I'm a really happy person doing what I do, uh, thrilled that I get to do what I do. And is that the time we went? One minute. Okay, so we have one more question. Carol. <laughs> Well, what actually happened to that was kind of a, cer- a certain, oh, what happened to my stubborn religious streak? Um, religion streak, actually, is what he said. Oh, belligerence. Oh, honey, I misunderstood. Oh, thank goodness you repeated it. My belligerent streak. I don't know that it's gone. <laughs> but I don't. I don't need to. I don't need to be right so much anymore, and that may be also a function of age. You know, I used to hear people who were older than me uh, say, "I don't know anything," and I thought, "Oh, that's so humble and sweet." And of course, they know stuff. They've been around a long time. They know a lot of stuff. I'm 63, and I've been around a long time now, and I am startled at what I don't know. That what I thought I knew, what I was sure of, what I was positive was the way it should go, my experiences had told me this. That's not the case today. I find that I have actual true humility in that area. So, anyway, so that's my position. Today has been humbled is what it's been. (laughs) Anyway, that's it. Thank you for letting me share.